Hi. This is one of those um, in the car in 2012 things. Like, man, I had this fucked up dream. You were there, Jesse, and it was, but it was the future. There was a, it was a bookstore, but there was like a tree in it, and a guy from TV was there, and it just, it was weird. So, hi, everyone. I'm Sam. I'm going to read from my book, Exploded View. It's. Uh, just a just a wild book. Um, I'm terribly excited about it. The thing that you don't realize when you're a kid and you're really excited about growing up and uh, and writing awesome science fiction books is that when the day comes, you have to do your first reading for one. Then there's you know you got to figure out like ah oh, I haven't showered since Thursday and, and where's where's my Xanax. And you're like, oh, those are all the adult things. I got that out of the way, and now I can go back to being a 10-year-old who wrote an awesome science fiction book. And then you get to the bookstore, and you're surrounded by books, and you feel so insignificant and awful about yourself. So we're just going to ignore that little part of it. Uh, and I got my notes right here. I'm not texting anyone. I'm just reading a few things I read this that I wrote this morning when I was very depressed. And then I'm gonna then I'm going to get to the book here. Like I said, it's it's a it's a wild read. This book started um, in a conversation I had with Marcus, who's sitting right over there in 2003. We're gonna give him the typical recovery welcome. Hi, Marcus. Okay, uh, Marcus at the time worked designing video games for cell phones. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I don't play video games for cell phones. I barely knew what a cell phone was then. So he, to me, was like the, this just really smart man. And we were on tour together. I roadied for his band. And we had this breakfast in San Francisco. And I said, I have this idea I want to run by you, which is that I, I want to write about this th concept where in the future, with, well within our lifetimes, you will be able to have a device that will be like a TV and like a computer, and you can play anything you want on it, but you can reorder the content in real time. And Marcus said, what the fuck are you talking about? And I said, well, it's like, and this is a weird thing, because you remember it being Rhoda that we talked about. It wasn't. It was Maud. This is a little sidebar. I had a really weird part of my life where Maud came up like almost once a day, and this was at the tail end of it. Uh, this continued for a long time, and it wasn't funny. It was like a really shitty verbal tick on my part. So I'm pretty sure it was Maud. And I said, the idea is you'll be watching an episode of Maud, and you'll get bored with it, or you won't like the ending, and you rewind, and you say, I want to see Maud do a cartwheel, or Maud gets out a sword and executes some people, or let's see Maud naked, which would probably be a lot of the, the users would just transform whatever normal content they want into just crazy, creepy porn. And so Marcus said, no. I, I remember your precise words, no, absolutely not. And I was fucking crushed that day. And I vowed. Uh, no, no, so we, we tabled it. And we came back to it in 2012. And then at that point, he sort of conceded my point, I think. And the key to all of that is... Uh, we both agreed Shazam. And I think you kind of came up with that, like I was about to say that, but that was like on both of our minds, right? Yeah. Was that Shazam takes the, what do they call it, the acoustic fingerprint of a song and identifies it. And I know they can do that now with some movies. 
And this is just an extrapolation of that. It's not really science fiction. It's just what exists right now on a much, much larger scale. You are watching your episode of Maud starring B. Arthur, and you say, I want to see that samurai sword come out. And then the computer re-renders the content in real time faster than you can process it. And what you're seeing is essentially lucid dreaming. Obviously, this, this idea is going to be big. I think it'll, it'll be um, less like the advent of the internet and more like maybe movable type. Um, certainly, I think after this election season, everyone can probably guess that it's going to have some pretty insane uh, political applications. Um, God, I'm looking at my notes and I'm getting sucked into the depression from eight hours ago. It's really weird. Um, so part of what I wanted to write about was just the political... Um, implications of that uh, where I w was taking what's happening right now which is the post-truth world and uh, moving that into one in which you literally are living in a post-truth world you can go throughout your life wearing probably glasses something like Google Glass but one that won't be mocked because everyone will be wearing it and you'll be able to translate your reality into a reality you want that doesn't mean that you're living your entire life in Westworld or some sort of medieval fantasy. It means, that, or you can, but for most people it'll mean that uh, the, the echo chambers, specifically the political echo chambers that are happening right now will be uh, intensified exponentially. I thought there were some good ideas in there for fiction, and I followed it. Also, obviously, there's a lot of potential for... Um, I mean, there's so many hijinks that one could get up to with this. But if you have what I'm calling soft content in this book, the ability to re-render material media in real time, you could easily impersonate people. And that's, that's only something that has um, caught on in the media. I've read a few references to that in the last few months. Interestingly, there's... Um, I watched a lot of movies to write this book, more on that in a minute. Uh, one thing I've been very interested in is when they talk about the failure of imagination with 9-11, you can see it through movies. Terrorists pre-9-11 were people who had goals and aims, and, and they would die for their cause, but that wasn't a prerequisite. Uh, you see that same type of failure of imagination happening with this now, this thing that I'm calling soft content. I'm not trying to coin a phrase, uh, and I, I, I'm totally aware that it sounds like I am. Whatever this thing is going to be called that I'm calling soft content, no one is imagining it. There's one movie where someone impersonates someone else. Johnny Mnemonic, has anyone ever seen this? I saw it the first day it came out because Henry Rollins was in it, and I'm an idiot. And um, there's a scene in it where someone has a, a puppet, and they're, they're doing the puppet on like a scanner, and then the person on the other side is seeing the person they think they're talking to, and it lasts maybe eight seconds, and it's over. Uh, and in all the movies I watched, I, I never found anyone else addressing this, and um, that was a big impetus for this book. Besides being mocked mercilessly, I left that breakfast in tears, buddy, just flapping my arms like a little girl. I hope you were happy with yourself. Um, 
So, well, there's the last thing about that conversation. Well, I think what you were envisioning was that you would need a computer so smart that it could write everything in real time. And what we agreed later is you wouldn't. You're, you're just talking about software and networks and, and processing systems that can take, that can just go through the archive of movies, thousands and thousands of movies, and cull the plot points and the dialogue that it wants. Um, which is something that seems like it's doable right now. It's it's just a matter of uh, the hardware and software. I feel like I'm losing the thread here. Um, there's a second point I want to make real quick about this, which is I knew going into it that this book would be received as a dystopia, and already that's been used in all the reviews of it, and that's fine. I knew what I was getting into, but it's totally not a dystopia. A, a real big concept in what I wanted... To, to present with this was an underwhelming future. The span of time that I was looking forward to was just under 40 years, 38 years, uh, a little bit less now since I wrote it in 2013. If you go backwards the same amount of time, you're in the mid-70s, and I'm a child of the mid-70s. I remember that period really well. My wife is almost the exact same age as me, and we talk all the time about how goddamn creepy the 70s were. Just There was just this weird, like, aerosolized sleaze in the air. And, and all the time, you would hear grown-ups talking about making love. What are you going to do this weekend? Well, I go get dinner and make a little love. And he's like, ah, oh, you're a kid. And you're like, oh. And it's weird that that's, that that's gone, um, that that just disappeared. And th th there's... One of the things that I really am interested in in writing science fiction is looking at the future far less from a technological standpoint and just uh, looking at it from that that direction. What what are the little weird things that change? Um, I remember part of the whole sleazy thing of the 70s I figured out now, and I'm sure other people have, is that it was... There was... Uh, after this, the sexual revolution and this this wave of permissiveness, there were a lot of people who were left behind. They weren't hippies. They were normal people. A lot of them were probably Republicans. And their way to engage this was just like the sort of extra level of sleaze. The best example I could remember this morning when I was writing this is I have a friend and uh, his parents are kind of dicks. And they're, I don't know what their political persuasions were, but they were just very normal people, uh, not much fun to be around. And um, one day it was discovered that the father had underwear with like a faucet on it with a little drip coming out of it. And it said, bet you can't eat just one. And like, that was it. That's the thing that I'm trying to get at. Why was that okay to sell that back then to those? And that was also a new thing. That That's the kind of stuff that's weird to me. Or I spent a summer working at my dad's newspaper in the 80s, and I remember going through the archives, and I would always read the word tipsy, the tipsy driving, because the switch hadn't happened yet. In the 80s, it became bad to be a drunk driver, but it wasn't in the 70s. And that always stuck with me, that you could have those little bizarre social changes. So I tried to um, address some of that in this book. This is sort of a dense book, besides being a really weird book, so I, I'm sure a lot of those things were taken out um, in the edits. I just I removed a book's worth of material from this. And uh, I just feel like I've lost all of you completely. You're just, I can see you're shopping. Um, that's fine. 
Um, I'm going to read two sections here. One is uh, from the first chapter. <clears throat> there's no setup on this because I'm starting. It's, uh, there's all sorts of weird concepts. This book takes place, uh, in. it starts off on New Year's Day, uh, 2050. It's um, the, the point, again, getting back to what I said about the 70s, is it's the same city. There's, there's no giant pyramids. There's no flying cars. People have jobs. They fall in love. They worry about dying. They pay taxes. Um, I loved it in Blade Runner when they just showed old junkers on the street. And I thought it was very silly when Harrison Ford said he was going to meet someone at a bar in the fourth sector. Well, I can just say, oh, you know, I'll meet you at House of Pies. You know? And then they show it, and it's kind of the same. That, w- that would have been really cool. I tried to do that in this. Um, so this book opens uh, on New Year's Day with the protagonist. I guess I don't need to explain anymore. Uh, this is weird, you know, because at any point, like, I'm going to see you know, my high school principal walk in, and then there'll be more trees, and then it will be a dream. I'm like, fuck, I was enjoying that dream, and stuff. Okay, <clears throat> chapter one. Oh, I'm probably going to do some of the voices in this, and it's not going to be cool. It's going to be weird. <laughs> I said it's tough. Done talking, Terry folded her arms and leaned back into the freeway center divider, a shock of cold concrete on her hip jolting her upright again. It was an awkward confirmation that she she was actually here, standing in the middle of the interstate, watching several hundred festive cops loiter on a freeway blocked to traffic. The mob made all the merrier by bumper-to-bumper congestion in the opposing lanes. Where westbound was a parking lot, eastbound held a tailgate party. Every New Year's Day since she joined the department, Uribe Steakhouse opened early for a police open champagne br- for a police only champagne brunch. But with Jack Uribe still cleaning up smoke damage after a Christmas Eve kitchen fire, someone had had the bright idea to stage this year's gathering in a corner of Los Angeles State Historic Park. That site had proven so inhospitable trash, dogs, stray hypos, that when a quarter-mile stretch of the I-10 had been shut down to search for a shell casing, the 300-strong group had simply migrated wholesale to the freeway. Quickly glancing over both shoulders, she registered that traffic hadn't budged. She'd been arguing with the driver directly behind her, each having come to rest on either side of the center divider, directly under the boxy arch of the freeway signage scaffold. With her back to him now, Terry was struck by the uncanny feeling that she'd been speaking with an imaginary friend the whole time. Seemingly in response to this thought, a voice behind her said, Yeah, Terry, it is tough. Tough seeing my tax dollars pay for your bullshit. She sighed and turned, looking down on a balding, beat-faced man leaning out of his car, the edge of the divider perfectly level with his open window. He was a type, the powerless big mouth. Mm-hmm, she said. You don't really continue a conversation with a cop by using their first name. Half the goddamn police force is having a freeway party, and you're lecturing me, Terry? She turned and took in the scene, seeing officers in uniform doing a clean sweep farther down, but closer, more officers, some uniformed, some in shorts and jerseys, everyone chatting and laughing, most with their shades perched up on scalps, nearly everyone holding open containers. She had to admit it did not look great. All they needed were a grill and some lawn chairs. Our goddamn taxes pay your salary, Terry. 
First of all, it's Detective Pestuzka. We pay your paycheck and you repay us by shutting down the goddamn freeway. That sound about right, Terry? From behind, a voice said, who's your buddy? She turned again to see, Car- to see Sergeant Carl Saramillo, his ponderous gut supported by a faded t-shirt from Meat Wagon Steakhouse. Perhaps he'd slipped it on as some sort of half-drunk protest against Uribe. Most of the guys here were still boozy from last night. There'd probably be some chest bumping soon. Loudmouth citizen number 8001, she said. Guy's mad at us because he had to sit in traffic for 10 minutes. Hey, buddy, we just shut down eastbound, Carlos said. Westbound is all juggernaut. We got nothing to do with that. Hey, buddy, I saw you over at the kangaroo room. Oh, yeah? How'd I look? Like you, but less of an asshole? Carlos licked his lips, locked fingers, and stretched his arms with the palms out then reached up and pulled down the shades resting on his scalp. From a distance, cop glasses, panops, looked like any other pair of store-bought iPhones. Seen up close, they were the ultimate expression of authority, a more potent symbol than even a badge or gun. Okay, Franklin Herrera, 466 West Broadway in Glendale, Carlos said with a pleasant little smile. Age 36, divorced, employed by Tatanga Graphics. Uh Uh-oh, oh no. I'm seeing some unpaid littering citations, Detective Pestuska, seeing some missed child support payments. He was almost definitely making stuff up on the fly, no one being stupid enough to mouth off to cops with an open offense hanging overhead. But sometimes it rattled the lippy. Carlos Aramillo, who lives in the Woodbridge Arms Complex, 8360 Sunland Boulevard, the man in the car announced, reading Carlos's face through his own shades. I'm seeing some serious cop watch citizen citations. Nice try, dipshit. My ex-wife lives there now. Terry saw a change come, Carlos darkening, preparing to take this harmless sparring to a different level. You got something to say about her, Dick Whizzle? That woman's a saint. The man in the car swallowed nervously, looking to her and then Carlos with a sudden solemnity, saying, Are you aware that in Sweden they have citizen policing now? Hey, oh, call it. Carlos raised up and cupped his hands, yelling out to the multitude, We got a Sweden! The crowd cheered. Nearby, a uniformed officer said, Damn, eight hours into the new decade. Carlos leaned back over the concrete center divider and stuck his entire head into the car, probably stinking up the interior with hooch breath. Bad news, Frank Carrera, age 36, working some bullshit job at some place no one cares about. Sweden's in the opposite fucking direction. Hey, man! The next driver back leaned out of his own window. He was young, crazy-eyed. Hey, man! Hey, man, that's harassment! Carlos straightened up, amused again, the man in the first car doing his best to appear righteously vindicated. Hear that? Carlos, Terry, the people have spoken. Harassment! The second man shouted out to the world. It's harassment! She realized the second guy was drunk. The crowd's guffaws only spurring him on. Harassment! The second man continued, shrieking now, craning his neck around as if the real cops might show up at any minute. Carlos looked down to his captive audience with a determined smile, tapping the space in front of him. From the way he wriggled his fingers, Terry could, Terry could tell it was all bullshit, but the guy in the car appeared concerned. Hey, hey, don't tag me. I'm within my rights. Zach Zendejas emerged from the crowd offering one broad hand to Carlos, placing the other on her shoulder. His big slab of a face showed no hangover. Zach was a family man. He'd probably fallen asleep by 12.30. In six years as her partner, he'd packed on some weight, 
jocular jock slowly fading into jowly jock, probably hitting genuine portliness by retirement time. For now, he could still impersonate the body and bearing of an ex-military man, although he'd only segued into policing years ago from a job moving furniture. <clears throat> Terry P. Looks like he found some action. You see this shit? Zach nodded up at the overhead freeway signage toward the three huge green rectangles hanging over the stalled westbound lanes. See it? The bag? Some miscreant had tossed a ratty old gym bag up onto the sign's metal catwalk ledge. Keep looking! On the furthest rectangle, past the arrows directing passengers to Santa Monica and Santa Ana, she saw an extra smudge in white. Seen from this foreshortened angle, it wasn't clear what she was looking at. Is that graffiti? Blast from the past. Wow. Someone actually found the one surface in the city without paint-resistant paint. Quite a feat. More like witchcraft. He pointed lower to the looped coils of razor wire draped like foliage over both sides of the structure. Seriously, how? The yelling behind them intensified, and they turned into the morning sunlight, realizing that both drivers were shouting at each other now, oblivious to Carlos, who had doubled over with laughter. She heard the first man yell, I don't need your help! Just shut up! Wincing from the glare, they turned back towards downtown, taking in the skyline's clustered skyscrapers. Is this what you thought the 50s would look like? She asked. Wrong voice. Ugh. This is the decade I turned 50. She realized she would, too. So, day one, he sounded sympathetic. Day one, oh, right, no more overtime day one. For the last 16 months, overlapping city and state budgets had poured modest surplus cash back into law enforcement, politicians at all levels desperate to get a handle on crime rates. It had been a golden age of fractional overtime, with plenty of extra cash for motivated cops. Terry had been one of the most diligent devotees of the extra workload. You're certainly taking this better than I expected. I have no idea what you're talking about, she murmured hypnotized by the gleaming skyscrapers, realizing this was the only truly good time of day to view them, sun hitting dead on and making the buildings appear important and powerful. Carlos Jaramillo joined them, motioning back towards the arguing drivers. Fucking downfall of civilization, get a good look. Zach turned back, squinting. Creeping chaos. You want to talk about that? Last week, me and Louis Mahoney were at this barbecue thing. We're off duty, off pan up, honest engine, not looking for any kind of trouble. We come around a corner in this nice neighborhood by Verdugo. We see two nudists going at it on their lawn. I mean, full on, triple X action. Not a stitch of clothing to be seen. Behind them, draped across the front porch, they'd made this big banner that said, just try and stop us. Zach lit up. He loved tales of broad, light, of broad, of broad daylight debauchery. Sophisticates. Yeah, well, that's the way of the world. Forget those. He pointed towards the skyscrapers. This whole city is turning into one big ghetto garbage dump. Trash people on all sides. Look at this crap. He was getting himself worked up again, pointing to the flat stucco apartment complexes overlooking the eastbound lanes. These ugly-ass shit boxes full of tacky, ignorant people. You live in a trash can. How can you be anything but trash? Zach met Terry's eye, grinning, enjoying this. Yeah, Carlos? How trashy are they? Trash bag, hose, monster, motherfuckers. Carlos licked his lips, laughing tentatively when he saw how hard Zach laughed. What? You just pointed at Terry's apartment. Oh, shit. Hey, uh. No, hey. She glanced over at her building. I'm certainly not fond of the place. 
a whoosh came, each of them rotating to watch the westbound traffic shocked back into action, cars zipping off as if the road itself had suddenly yanked them into the distance. Not much of a New Year's celebration, Carlos said. Pretty appropriate for a year without overtime, Terry said. Zach gave another amused side glance, this time directed at her. Thought you didn't care about that. A shout came from the crowd. Pan up! She pulled down her own shades, the moment of transformation like the instant between holding and wearing a piece of clothing. Panopt, the network, materialized through panopts, the hardware. The world blossomed with captions. Rounded byline boxes sprouted over every head, speech balloons in an endless comic strip. In her margins, a welter of informative keywords, links, transcripts, and audio options flourished. These glasses peered back at the eye, gauging nuances, focus, depth of field, iris contraction, and rendering their images faster than human perception. It was a new trick aping an old trick. Two lenses fooled the eyes into seeing information in stereo. Two eyes, I'm sorry. Two lenses fooled the eyes into seeing information in stereo. Two eyes fooled the brain into seeing depth. Captions appeared as solid as the people they floated over. A small clock floating in her lower left field of vision told her it was 9.51. She had the whole day ahead of her, the new year and the new decade after that. A lieutenant addressed the troops, sounding as if he stood next to her, offering a condensed version of the underwhelming speech cops got every New Year's Day. Maintain. Persevere. Overcome. At least this new year had provided one cinematic moment that would have been impossible inside a crowded steakhouse. It had been an impressive sight, everyone putting on their panops at once. Although she'd caught the slight self-delusion to the scene. Cops wanted to see themselves as an army, when really they were something far more dangerous. An organism. I feel like that should be the appropriate length for reading. Uh, Q&A? Should I do more reading? Let's do a Q&A. what about the cops? Well, it's interesting you asked that. Um, when I wrote this, <clears throat> I finished it in 2013, and it was actually uh, almost exactly a year before Ferguson, meaning that when I wrote this, I was very concerned that I was being too tough on police officers. There was st- it's hard to remember now that there was still that kind of lingering after echo of post-9-11 reverence for cops and firefighters. And now... I'm a little worried that this thing reads as the most sympathetic cop book ever. It's, it was written very intentionally with the idea of being neutral. I wanted to write a cop-neutral book. Um, I had been planning for a while to do ride-alongs and interview police officers, and I had one really bad experience on the phone for an article I was writing uh, for the Huffington Post that didn't get finished um, about the police conspiracy in Long Beach. And this guy I talked to was just hands down the worst human being I've ever spoken with in in my life. Um, It was weird. The last uh, book novel that I wrote, The Loom of Ruin, which is for sale up up at the counter over there, involved phone calls from Satan. And I had been sitting there looking through it thinking, that's actually kind of a scary idea. I'd be really freaked out if Satan called me. And the phone rang right then. and, And 
I just had all this like incredible, like I've never been that awake. And I picked it up and there was a long pause. Like I expected just And instead it was this cop and the guy was worse. He was worse than Satan. He was such a goddamn prick. And so after that phone call, I kept it in my mind a little bit and I thought about it more. And um, I'm, I feel like I'm good at being cop neutral uh, because of who I am. I have had almost uniformly good experiences with cops, but uh, I'm of the mind that probably most people in liberal Los Angeles are about cops probably not being, uh, they should, you know, cut down drastically on the killing of unarmed people. Um, and so I realized I didn't want to have any dealings with cops at all for this book because if I met say that guy that I talked to that would severely color this whole process and I didn't want that there are some serious assholes in this book uh, that work for the police department and there are also some people who uh, are just good uh, public employees doing a really really nightmarish job for low pay and zero appreciation Um, the world in this book is far more reflective of the post-Ferguson world in which police get no respect, except that in this world it's a uh, social network-dominated uh, existence, so it's far easier and quicker to give cops less respect. But cops have far, far more tools than they have now. I thought that all those things would be interesting to explore without me having to superimpose any weirdness about police on it. Good question. Next question. I haven't read The Exploded Food yet, so I'm, I'm hesitant to ask any questions about this because I think the answer will probably be self-evident when I read it. But can I ask you a question about The Loom of Room? Yes. Is that okay? Yes. I saw in an inter- interview you said that you did the cover design for The Loom of Room. Yeah. And you said that that was more difficult than writing the book. That sucked. Can you just explain a little bit about what went into designing the cover and why it was so, so tough? Um, I've been shooting my mouth off forever about Cover art. I feel really strongly about how books should have good cover art. And did you do this one? I did not. Um, one of the things that you learn about the publishing industry is that you can't walk in off the street and demand to do your cover art. I um, am happy with this cover art. It's not precisely the direction I would have gone in, but it's fine and it looks good. Uh, letters are nice and big. They compromised on a few things. I compromised on some other things. Everything turned out great. It's just, it's a solid, it looks like a real book. Like, you know, like, oh, wow, man, Sam wrote a real book instead of that weird joke book, Luma Ruin. Um, that, I don't know why, but that, you know, also, I'm not a graphic designer. Like, I, I have tricked myself into thinking I'm a graphic designer, but the program that I use is like Photoshop from 1998. And then um, I had a job 10 years ago that I got fired from in an office and I stole their version of Flash. And so I'm using that the way that other people use like CorelDRAW or something, which isn't really correct. So my skills are really limited. Um, And although I've, over the years, I've really, I've really shrunk down my um, tendency to shoot my mouth off about things. Uh, Cover art on books was not one of those things. So at that point, it was there was also a deadline. There was a real serious deadline. And uh, I just had to do it, and it just freaked me out um, because it had to look good. Uh, I'm surprised I mentioned that in an interview. That seems a little unprofessional on my part. (laughs) Are you unhappy with the Lumber Room cover? 
No, I think that's the best thing I'll, I will have ever done, artistically, yeah. <laughs> Luma Ruin Across the Board, that's a, that's a damn fine book. I could have done some better things with it, but just like, uh, it was pretty much, you know, uh, whatever the sport was, was a sports analogy, I hit, hit the football out of the park. I totally tossed the football and it went out of the park on that one. Um, but I don't know that I would ever design a book cover again. I, I had some illusions about, and I sent a lot of sketches for this one, and they were very professional and polite and said, we'll, we'll work on it from our end. Um, so, yeah, lesson learned. Anyway, good question. This is fun. Yes. So I read some of the book. Uh, it's toward the beginning, spoiler alert or whatever. But uh, there's a scene where she's at home and she's watching a movie, and she like uses the pan ops thing to just like be in it, and she's just chill. yeah, so not really doing anything, not augmenting the film, just like yeah, yeah. I mean, and the film keeps trying to draw her back in. And I was wondering, is that going in the direction about how to, what our engagement with technology, how it engages with us? but still being like a programmed thing that's not actually human and has a person, I don't know. There's, uh, you know, stuff, um, especially in this book, it's a little bit like, you ever been to the Winchester house? You know the Winchester house? Yeah, okay. That like the the crazy lady house that just has like quarters that go nowhere. There's so much stuff in this book that was designed to go somewhere else. And I think that was one of them. The... The core of this entire book is that scene. This whole thing was going to be a short story. It was a guy in New York who just had a TV that was like this, um, where he could make it immersive or he could change the content. And um, it would. the idea is it would become more and more obvious that bad things were happening in the news or even outside in the streets, and this guy didn't like the news, so he would just change the news to be better. And I mean, that's like not much of a dramatic arc in that story. Um, so that got sort of sucked into this. <clears throat> and I think that was part of it. But what was the intention on that? Um, it seems like something that would have led to something else that didn't. It's hard to remember this stuff. It's, a, it's really creepy. It seemed to me that it was like a nostalgic moment on her part because she was, isn't she just like smelling the air or something like that? It was like she was longing for this other time to sound. Yeah, I think that was part of it. Yeah. So it was like this was her way of sort of remembering this time was to sort of stall out and yeah. hang out for hours if she wanted in this yeah. movie that was from a particular era. And maybe the idea would be that movies and content providers, meaning automated content providers, would want to draw you back into storylines with the ultimate purpose of selling you things. At the very least, you finish the movie and then you have to purchase a new movie. Or I don't know what. That's a pretty unsophisticated take on it. Um, but that doesn't really seem correct thinking about it now because I've played Grand Theft Auto. I don't want to play it. I just walk around. You know, I just treat it like I'm walking around in whatever city I'm in and I'll shoot someone every now and then. But mostly it's just fun to just be in it. You know, So maybe that was part of it. I don't really know. I think it was intended to be something else, and I just kind of lost the thread. And there's so much stuff in this. There's there's a few things that are probably typos, I think, that no one would catch but me. Of just like, there were some characters that got orphaned, but then like the auto, the control F didn't pick it up. So like, I think Gladys. And you might read the word Gladys. Gladys was a character, and she got she got 86. But she's there's the word Gladys still appears in the book somewhere. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yes, young man, the um, hat. So my question is, uh, writing sci-fi, especially if you're trying to do something that's close to now, but in the future you can think of like 
I haven't read the book yet, so. Um, but like, you have to think of new terminology and names for things and how things would be, but not go too far. So was that was that challenging or difficult? Like, had you written sci-fi before? Not that was published, no. So, um, so like, was that, is that, because you're trying to do something that's still sort of set, set in a, a realistic place. Yeah, I would never... I like this book a lot. I would not write a book like this precisely the same way because it's very exposition heavy. Is that the right term? You have to you have to keep clobbering the reader with explanations for things or working out ways of conversations like, hey, do you know about the Gleebot 9000? Yes, but why don't you tell it to me again <laughs> as they look off into the distance. Um, I spent a hell of a lot of time trying to negate that. And the way that I did it is I just had a master list. This guy here came over to my house once and I, you know, God forbid, leave the computer on with something weird on it. And he's like, what's this? And it was a spreadsheet with just thousands of little boxes and everything was color-coded. And I said, oh, that's the novel I'm working on. And you said, I'll never forget this, that's what crazy people do. And I said, no, that's what... It's like if you're in a boat and you're in the ocean, you need to know where you are in the ocean because otherwise you'll get lost. So for this, I made a very complex list of every single concept, like what you're talking about, a new concept. And then also a separate list that sometimes overlapped of every uh, like character like think non-technological thing that still needed to be introduced where it was teased on what page it was teased and then on what page it was fully introduced and the goal there was always to just ease into it as as smoothly as possible i have no illusions that it's there's going to be some stuff in here that's going to read a little um ham-handedly but I, you know i tried that should be a quote i, I, I tried folks yeah, science fiction is weird in a lot of respects. I think logistically it requires way more um, uh, prep work. Uh, there's a lot of research. What I did not do for this book, um, there's no world building, if that's the right term. There's nothing, there is n nothing outside of this book that exists. Like I, if if I made timelines for characters, it was only to the point of it was only for the point of consistency. It wasn't like I had this whole other world. I don't know where, you know, I don't know what happened with Terry Pestuzga in grade school. I don't care, you know. Um, it, uh, and I know that a lot of other writers and also, like, uh, there's a huge book on Blade Runner, uh, and they interview Ridley Scott, and he talks about just building the world outside of it. And that sounds fun, and if you have the resources to do it and other people, it, it probably is. But for me to do it, um, I would have been standing here in front of you uh, 40 years from now, an old, broken man, and I didn't want that. So uh, I lost my train of thought on that. But yeah, good, good book. Yes? Sam, um, congratulations on the book. Thank you. I'm coming for me. Um, I was looking forward to this for a couple of years, uh, or one year. I love the book, and um, would you explain the Zilch Patrol and your interpretation of the Imsane? Because I know there was a couple um, interpretations of Imsane in the book. Oh, well, Imsane is the graffiti artist referred to at the uh, <clears throat> beginning here, and all the cops are really pissed off that there are still graffiti artists in Los Angeles because... Most of the, well, uh, not just that you can't 
spray paint on paint resistant surfaces, which is, you know, like the subways in New York, but also culturally, this is a world where their graffiti doesn't really make sense. Um, and so everyone's furious that this guy somehow did this little magic trick and got up onto this, the freeway signage and was spray painting Imsane. Mostly they're mad because it's spelled I-M-S-A-N-E. And so is he saying, I'm sane, like it's a cry for help, or is he so banana time bonkers that it's that he doesn't know how to spell insane correctly. That's how insane he is. Um, so that's just one of those weird little running threads throughout the book. Uh, Zilch Patrol is just cop talk. They just got the wrong case. Um, there's a lot of parts in this book where I was just like, "What? What the fuck are you doing here?" Because it was. It's just. It's so. There's so much cop. I really enjoy. Um, all that weird cop stuff, all the the just extreme um, dark humor. There is a book called Cops by Mark Baker. Mark Baker. Um, I purchased it for a penny on eBay. You all should read it. You can read it in a day, and it's god damn, it's incredible. Every page is just some horror story. A man gets attacked with breast milk at one point. But I mean, every page is like that. It's it's just. It's just like an oral history of cops, but it's not like the TV show, which I've always found kind of boring. I mean, besides the fact it's a little repulsive, it's just kind of boring. It's the same thing. The book is not that. The book is just crazy, crazy shit. Um, And I really enjoy things like that, and I like making things like that up. There's a lot of pretty bleak, dark jokes in this. Um, I had a a long time ago, when I lived in Virginia, I had a next-door neighbor who was a paramedic. He's huge, and he comes over one day, and he's got this big box. And he goes, hey, I got all these paramedic magazines. Do you want them? And I was like, <laughs> I was like yeah, sure, I'll take them. Yeah. And then every page was just incredible. And they had one thing there that was um, Sniglets. Remember Sniglets? Made up words. It was paramedic Sniglets. And they were just horrible. Foldsmobile, any car where all the occupants and all the interior have just been compressed. I mean, it was all just awful stuff. And then ads... Um, like really creepy ads for paramedics in Saudi Arabia or ones where like I'm from wherever Johns Hopkins we're doing a study we're looking for um, quadruple fatality car accidents involving 83 to 87 Honda Civics like that kind of stuff just the whole thing was just a gold mine Um, I don't know why he detected that I wanted those so badly. And also beautiful graphics. I mean, ads that were just so outrageous, just like bleeding children looking up like, why didn't you purchase the, you know, the other brand of gauze or something? <laughs> so I have uh, an affinity for that. I love that cop's book. Thanks again for recommending me to that. Um, yeah, Zilch Patrol is just the general thing. And I don't, there's a bunch of things in this book that I, because I wrote it, I have no idea how it reads. I think it could easily be just too much. Um, I hope not. But I will never know. Anyway, anything else? Yes. You had mentioned you watched a lot of films in preparation for this. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, what what were some like the main ones? Yeah, um, that's funny because I was trying to remember titles this morning and came up blank. Um, right, films. The films that I watched for this, I watched a bunch of films from uh, the early and the mid '70s Los Angeles, because I was really curious what's changed. And if you look at the city going back the same amount of time that I was going forward, I mean, it's the same goddamn city. Like, the cars are not even that different. And you realize, if you grabbed someone out of one of those movies, dragged them into uh, 2013, and was like, hey, here's the internet, you could explain it to them in a half hour. And then, 
Another half hour later, they'd be like, your Wi-Fi sucks, and we need to get this worked out now. Like, it's, the differences are so few, and, but then I remember all those weird little cultural things, and it, that kind of adds up. Like, the time I was on an airplane as a little kid, and they said, don't smoke pipes, cigars, or pot. And everyone on the plane, just an ocean of just gross mustaches, like, whoa, whoo, 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 like it was a little in-joke that everyone in America shared, like all that shit, you know? So I, I just was really curious. It was an intangible thing, you know, but I still got good notes out of it. I don't remember a single one of those titles. You and I talked about this a bunch. You gave me a list. Do you remember any? Stalker. What? Stalker. Stalker. No, no, I'm talking about movies from Los Angeles in the 70s. Um, one was... What? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the Mega Man doesn't really count. Um, uh, the car one, the guy with the car that was remade, Gone in 60 Seconds. It's movies like that, movies that are like kind of who gives a shit movies. Like you're stoned and it's two in the morning, like oh, I guess I'm watching that. Um, I went out and rented a bunch of those. Yeah, it's, I'm creeped out. I, I can't remember the titles. And I, I took a lot of notes when I wrote this book, as I do for any project. Not really a diary, but just things pertinent to what I'm doing, just so I can kind of keep a, a record of my thought processes. Uh, and I didn't write down any of the movies, so put that one in the, the bad column. I'm sorry? Okay. Yes? You mentioned dystopia a couple times, so, like, do you resist that because it's been done or something, or, like, is it a dystopia? Like, what... Um, no, I resisted that. Well, yeah, it's it's really been done a lot. But also, th my my point in this was just that um, this is a world in which some really bad things have happened. There have been wars; people have died. But that's the nature of reality. We're all going to go through some serious shit in our lives. My grandparents went through World War II. Um, if you if you went back in time a hundred years, <clears throat> everybody thought that. They had lived through the ultimate. You know, I think 38 million people were killed in World War I, and then a generation later, there's a war that kills almost twice that. There's concentration camps and the atomic weapons. Um, something's going to happen probably this month, and I don't think it's going to be uh, like a, a civil war or anything, but I think there's going to be some serious shit that's going to happen after the election, no matter which way it goes. I think probably what's happening right now will be a very large tributary that will feed into something much worse happening at a an unspecified future time. Um, the point of all that was, I don't think that we're living in a dystopia. I don't really know if I believe in that concept of dystopias. I think after the after the Soviet Union fell, that really encouraged a lot of people to think of um, empires as things that can just rise or fall instantaneously, and that America's next. And that's not really how things work. If you look at history, I mean, Rome fell over a long period of time, and there was an Eastern Empire that just kept going. You could have, I mean, there are dystopias in many parts of the world. I went to Uganda a couple of years ago, and it was a great trip, and I met a lot of great people, but they had electricity two hours a day, and there were just rivers of liquid filth running through the town. So that was kind of dystopian. I, so I guess the point there is I think the word is misused um, and I really wanted to present something that was my idea of an underwhelming future, meaning the technological changes are uh, pale in comparison to the social changes, but even those aren't, nothing is unrecognizable, if that makes sense. Um, I don't mind a good dystopia film if it really 
pays off. I'm trying to think of one. Um, I mean, I don't really consider Blade Runner dystopia, and I know that a lot of people do. Uh, boy, that I just my answer just petered out. I'm, I got nothing. I'm sorry. Anyway, yes. <clears throat> Any other questions? Okay, well, thank you for coming by. Uh, I just want to strongly encourage you to, to read this book and to thank Marcus over there. And uh, I'll be up here signing them, uh, just uh, talking to all of you one-on-one, seeing what your dreams and your feelings are all about. And uh, thank you very much for coming out. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.